the chance to take the Red Bulls into the postseason, and he's done it for New York. It could well be Red October again. Nashville SC heads to the playoffs on a down note after that goal, as heard on Apple TV by New York Red Bulls. The late Red Bulls penalty propelled New York to its 14th straight playoff appearance and consigned Nashville to seventh place in a first-round series against Orlando. West Bowling, Tim Sullivan, this is Club and Country, the podcast of record for Nashville SC coverage. From the two people who brought you that coverage longer than anybody else in their respective medium, media. We've been messing this up the whole time. Maybe so. Tim, how are you today? <laughs> I'm doing very well. How are you doing, Wes? Good. I'm now re-evaluating our whole elevator pitch that I might have had a grammatical error in there. Maybe I just butchered it today, which is probably even more. Yeah, I think, it was, I think it was more the latter to be quite I think I butchered it. Not the first thing I butchered today. One of those days. Um, Tim, a win would have elevated Nashville past Atlanta to sixth place uh, in the standings and a meeting with Columbus. Instead, Nashville loses to Red Bulls, still they, they've still never beaten New York, um, barely scored against them. Who got the better end of that deal? Uh, is it Nashville for finishing seventh but playing an Orlando team that they maybe should have gotten points off of at home not long ago? Or is it Atlanta for you know being the team to finish higher in the standings? Yeah, I honestly think both teams, when you look at what it means for the playoffs, probably ended up where they wanted. I think Atlanta feels like they match up a little bit better against Columbus. Um, As we talked about last week, at least we believe that Nashville matches up a little bit better with Orlando. So it works out in that sense. But um, obviously, you would love to to finish as high as possible on the table. The fact that New England was not going to leave the door open for Nashville to completely pass them with a win makes it essentially just a preference matter between whether you'd want to play Columbus, want to play Orlando. We, I think we both picked Orlando last week. I certainly said Orlando. Mm-hmm. So um, from, from Nashville's perspective, I think it, it probably uh, works out well for them. And I, I don't think Atlanta is losing sleep over it either though. No, and I don't think this Nashville team probably deeply cared. I would just have a hunch that maybe they had a strong desire to get back at Orlando after a really frustrating defeat at Jonas park. And because there doesn't seem to be a lot of love lost between um those teams uh but beyond that i think from a quality standpoint every matchup is going to be tough in atlanta uh, orlando maybe maybe the most favorable at least on paper until you look at what orlando's done this this year and recently more on that to come more on the matchup to come but first the schedule it's kind of strange tim if you like midweek excuses to go to ml rose then the first two games are for you um, Monday, October 30th, Halloween Eve, 6 p.m. Central Time. Nashville goes to Orlando. They have to wait eight days to make the return to Nashville. 8 p.m. on Tuesday, November 7th. So I smell a great pregame tailgate at ML Rose coming there. And then the, um, if necessary, third game is Sunday, November 12th, 4 p.m. in Orlando. Tim, a match between these two teams typically gets a little bit salty. The point of these series, besides generating TV money for Apple is to kind of generate some more storylines and play this thing out and let that playoff intensity breathe a little bit. What is a two or three game series between these two teams going to feel like? Yeah, it's going to be really intense. These are, you know, they're not hated rivals by any stretch of the imagination. I think if you asked uh, Nashville's administration, they might agree with Nashville fans that you'd say Cincinnati is a a bigger rival. Atlanta is a bigger rival. And some of that is shared history um, in Cincinnati's case across leagues. Um, but some of it is is just that, you know, you look at the proximity, you look at the distance, and it doesn't mean a whole lot. You mentioned that that 1-0 Nashville loss at Geodis Park earlier, um, you know, just not too long ago, actually. But 
I think that's probably indicative of if this series um, has the juice that we that we hope and think it does. That's where I think you can really see a rivalry start to be born. Um, obviously, geographically, these are these are going to be teams that are lumped together in the southeast. Um, obviously, we know that it's it's not exactly uh, around the corner to get to Orlando from here, but it is a situation where if they do have a really spirited series, if it plays out similarly to the the physical and and at times maybe a little bit dirty nature of the match in Geodas Park, um, you can really have. Uh, you know, some of that intensity carry over, not just um, from game one to game two and, and hopefully to, to game three for, for Apple's sake, but into future seasons as well. Yeah, the friends say, hey, over under of red cards in this series, 2.5. I'm like, I'm taking the under because I, I yeah. like to think these players are too smart to to do that to themselves and their teams. If they played three times in the span of two weeks in the regular season, though, I'm taking the over probably in, <laughs> in, in that. Not that Orlando is a stranger to a red card in a playoff game. Just look at their history. It has happened. <laughs> or in, in knockout uh, competition in general. Uh, so today we're going to get into that series. Three things you might not know about Orlando. We hope to have more Orlando preview content coming your way, by the way. Just keep your ear to the ground there. Uh, but also, we want to put Nashville's fourth season in context. Somehow, it's already been four years, or maybe you know, 3.75 if you count the pandemic year as such. Uh, what did we learn this year? What do we know about this team after 34 games? The mailbag touches a bit on that subject as well and gets some, into some pretty tough questions here that we will endeavor to answer. And then we'll give you our playoff matchup superlatives. Most interesting, biggest blowout, and most likely to erupt into chaos. That is ahead on this show. It's a packed show. First, Tim. Um, what's your pet situation? You guys have a you guys have a dog at home? Yeah, we got two dogs. Two dogs? What kinds of dogs do you have? We have a, a black lab mix, and everybody thinks this is crazy. We got a, a husky corgi mix as well. I have questions. Yeah, that I want to. So it's actually before. so. Uh, shout out uh, a free advertisement. Love at first sight in Sylvan Park is where we is where we got JoJo. Aww. Yeah. Um, she's actually half Australian Shepherd, each parent. So there was a, a Corgi Aussie parent and a Husky Aussie parent. And those, uh, you know, I don't I don't know how this happened. I never had that conversation with my parents, but they ended up producing <laughs> more dogs. And, and JoJo is one of them. That's great. Love at first sight. Also, we got Sebastian, our German Shepherd lab mix, who uh, lived a good life. And we said goodbye to him last year uh, after 12, 12 good years with us. The point being, not just to talk about dogs, which are wonderful, or love at first sight, which is great. ML Rose, November 12th, 9 a.m. So the day of that potential game three playoff match, doggy yoga. Doggy yoga. Okay. It's going to be a, a yoga class. Um, it's sponsored by a rescue, um, a rescue uh, adoption agency that's not love at first sight so why uh but spots are limited you can purchase tickets at the link uh, if you go to ml rose's uh social media handles which is at underscore ml rose check it out um if you hang around for brunch afterward 20 percent of food sales go to the rescue so we are talking up another rescue that's not involved in this <laughs> sorry uh but but that's one where we're all playing on the same team right so um Check it out. Go to ML Rose's social handles. And Tim, I think that combines two great things we've never combined in an ML Rose ad read, which is, of course, the great burgers, the beer, the brunch, the good times, and puppies. Yeah. And if anybody uh, endeavors to go to dog yoga uh, at 9 a.m. And, and lasts through a 6 p.m. end <laughs> to, that, to that Orlando City match, uh, salute you and uh, definitely make sure that you take various pictures to chronicle your adventure throughout the day, <laughs> tag us and tag ML Rose in them. And we will, we will talk about you on the podcast in a future episode. I promise you that much. 
Yes, indeed. Um, we do salute those folks. By the way, this is at the ML Rose Silton Park location. Uh, so the West Nashville location. Uh, however, there was no um, saluting happening from Hani Mukhtar against Red Bull's anemic offensive performance. And Gary Smith waited on that and on some of the recent inconsistency from this club heading into the home stretch. Honestly, I thought I thought the game in general, I'd said it in the build-up to the to the game, was going to be totally different to New England last week. The facts and the stats will tell us no goals. Um, and... You know, that now takes us back to Orlando and to Seattle. And in the last three or four games here, the return has not been great. And maybe there is a trend there. Maybe there is something that's a little bit more disturbing than, than I'm looking at. But I think if you take the games on their own, there are moments and opportunities, for sure, that certainly should be taken more advantage of. And, and to that degree, of course, it's a little bit worrying. Um, if, we're, if we're considering where we are at going into the playoffs, which is the most important question right now, I can tell you fully and, and honestly that the guys will walk away from here very disappointed and emotionally unhappy about what's happened with the result. It's a fact of professional sport. I think when we all wake up in the morning, we'll look back on Philadelphia, New England and New York Red Bull and say, you know what, there's been some good displays. There have been some good team performances. For me, the guys have adapted and they've been able to execute slightly different plans. Philadelphia, back three. Against New England, we were far more aggressive and and, uh, and positive with our display given maybe the bodies we had starting in the game and today there were some things that were asked of the group and they fulfilled to a very good degree um, so I'm not overly unhappy about the way that we're playing what I am disappointed about is the fact that we're certainly not making the most of some of the moments that we get in a game and to that degree there's obviously still a little bit of work to do. Tim, on decision day against a desperate Red Bulls team, I think it's fair to say Nashville was the better team for, mm-hmm. for a good bit of that match. They followed a game plan that was probably a little more effective against Red Bulls than what they'd done in the past. They couldn't find the breakthrough, and that exposes them to the possibility that one mistake can end them and against the direction of play on walking away with a legitimate penalty inside the box, and Nashville once again fails to get the job done at home. What, what gives? What is the deal? Yeah, do you know what I'm going to say, Wes? <laughs> okay, yes, and I have an answer to that later, like the, the, to the larger picture later. But go ahead and say the the alliterative term for which this podcast. Yeah, I mean it's it's a small sample size. If you have a bunch of good shots and don't score, uh, honestly, people don't realize that's that can be the the expected um, you know output for a game, even if you have over you know one expected goal in the match. Um, Nashville did not uh, exceed one expected goal, but they were close to it. I thought especially early in the match, they had some really good looks. Some of them didn't even result in shots. They were just in dangerous positions in the box. Didn't result in a shot. For example, Alex Mwil's, um play on which he thought he earned a penalty. 
I think there are times that you would see that called a penalty. I sure. do not think it should be called a penalty. Um, he's already dribbled the ball out of bounds basically before uh, Coronel takes him out. But, um, you know, those small things just kind of happen to to conspire and you don't score the goal that you think you deserve over the course of, you know, 75 minutes. And then 90, the first half had eight minutes of stoppage time. So a hundred some minutes into the match, <laughs> yeah. Anibal Godoy does clip a heel and, and give up a penalty. And, and John Tolkien does what he has been asked to do in that situation and hits it. It when you only play so many matches and when you only have so many shots, it's going to happen that way. Now, Nashville is a team that that has an identity based around kind of limiting shots for both teams, and that gives you a kind of high variance output at times if you aren't sharp and if your defense doesn't do exactly what has been kind of prescribed for it. And that happened against Red Bulls. Past Red Bull matches have had different reasons that they have gone wrong. And for that reason, you know, the small sample size of only having played them, you know, six or seven times, I think it is, means it's just a kind of a weird thing that this is the team that you haven't beaten. But on this day, they were deserved winners. Yeah, a lot more on that subject of small sample sizes and Nashville not being its own best ally <laughs> when it comes to that concept uh, coming up later on the show. But that does end Nashville's regular season on 49 points, good enough for seventh place in a pretty deep Eastern Conference uh, before we get into anything else, let's give you some factual context about that finish and about this season as it compares to Nashville's other finishes um, in its MLS history. It is the third best season in Nashville's four-year history if you go purely by points per match, which, of course, we have to do because of 2020, where only 23 games were played. Uh, 1.44 points per game comes in just ahead of that debut season at 1.39. It is worse than 2021 2022. And of course, that's going to be reflected in the league standing seventh place this year below the third place finish in 21, the fifth place finish in 22. And uh, Tim, if I'm being honest here, I, I felt like this Nashville team this year was a fourth or fifth place caliber team that just never put things together. I, I didn't necessarily feel after maybe 10 matches that this was going to be a supporter shield contender uh, or anything like that. I also didn't think they were a fringe playoff team. And even though they made the playoffs with ease, the standings would tell you in a traditional year, this is the last playoff spot. It's not this year. They changed the format. But I don't think this team is that bad. I think they're better than that. And they just never put things together. Good enough defense to keep them in every match. It was actually the best defensive season in club history, statistically. Best defense in the East, tied with Seattle for best in MLS. But then you look at the attack, and it was either untimely or anemic. Uh, some stats there. This team was 13 goals off of last year's pace. Last year when we said this team needs to upgrade its attack around Hani Mukhtar, uh, 16 goals fewer than 2021. And the, the most uh, difficult stat for me, the biggest indictment is that this team scored just a tenth of a goal more per game than that inaugural team in 2020. That was known for being a defensive group that had only a few you know, bright games in attack. So that, that gets to the, the biggest question I think we're all asking. It's one Gary endeavored to answer earlier on the show. It's the one we've asked numerous times. Why did this team regress in front of goal? Besides the fact that there were a few moments that didn't come to them, you know, I think we know enough after 34 games to know they weren't as good at the attack as they've been in the past. Why is that? Yeah, I think a big part of it is this club entered the year relying upon CJ Sapong to do a lot of the finishing that he didn't do last year, quite frankly. Um, they found other ways to get it done last year. This club said, okay, CJ Sapong is going to be the guy. He ultimately was so not the guy that he was traded in the first transfer or the first trade window, excuse me. Um, and, you know, we saw that 
uh, you know, Teal Bunbury couldn't necessarily get it done. The the winger turned striker duo of Jacob Schaffelberg and, and Fafa Pico kind of platooning couldn't quite get it done. And by the time Sam Surridge arrived this summer, he was able to be productive in League's Cup, but there wasn't enough time for him to get completely settled. And I think when you look at teams seeing the reigning MVP across the sideline from them saying, we're not going to let that guy beat us. Nashville needed an answer that they didn't necessarily need last year, and they simply didn't have it. Yeah, I think when you play the diamond as well, you're you're counting on the fact that you're going to be playing pinball in midfield a little bit. It's going to be a little more heavy hitting unless you can also get some width out of your fullbacks. And I feel like Shaq Moore and Dan Lovitz, for all the talent they have, maybe we're not as productive in, in getting forward or we're pressed back because Nashville was out of possession and they didn't get a chance to get forward and, and widen this attack. And so I feel like, you know, Nashville got the solidity in midfield that they counted on by moving to the diamonds. They were great in midfield. They were great defensively, but I, I just feel like maybe that was a missing element that, or the fact that if you play a Jacob Schaffelberg, he's more a chalk on the boots guy than he is a diamond wing may not be the best fit either way. Um, and, and I just, yeah, I feel like the, the combination of the diamond worked extremely well to keep Nashville in matches. It was not ever going to be the tactical answer for a team that wanted to be top half of the league in scoring goals. Fair. Yeah. I think that's a big part of it. Um, I'm I'm personally not a diamond fan kind of as a general tactical principle. I know it worked very well for Nashville this year, but when you look at how Nashville used it, they didn't send Shaq Moore super f- far, you know, high and wide up the field. They didn't send Dan Lovett super high and wide up the field. Yes, those guys got into the attack, but they weren't any different than they have been in previous years and that was with five-man midfield. So you are looking at a situation where Nashville made some trade-offs that they they knew basically what they were getting into by making some of those trade-offs. Mm-hmm. They were hoping that Hani Mukhtar playing the number 10 was going to be enough to overcome some of those trade-offs. At times it was. And unfortunately, at times it wasn't. I think when you look at the defensive record, um, I don't want to speak for Gary Smith. I think he would say, hey, I'm fine with a little bit less output as long as we have a little less input into our own goal as well. Yes. But uh, I think that's something that's fair to say that they made uh, conscious choices and and probably got what they expected out of those choices. And I think that fans didn't like it. <laughs> uh, maybe yeah. it's it's fair for, for people to not like it, but I, I don't yeah. think it's the biggest concern necessarily in terms of the results. Yeah, generally, I mean, they may have gotten what they expected, but I think you're right that they were relying on those individual moments of brilliance from Hani or from bringing in a second striker or, or a striker or or from CJ before they traded him. They didn't get. So they, they didn't get the all things being equal. Here's our X factor. They got all things being equal. And then randomness happened. Um, on the other side of things, nobody's really talking about the record defensive season Nashville had. And I get that. The season it was underachieving by just a little bit, uh, I think it's fair to say. And so nobody's going to say, yeah, but how great was the defense? Yeah, we know that. That's a bit of a known quantity here in Nashville. But are we still making a bit of a mistake by undervaluing that performance? And we're talking about a team that was tied in the few for the fewest goals conceded in major league soccer. One of the lowest XGs against in major league soccer, the best defensive record this club's ever had in terms of, of total XG per game. Are, are we overlooking that at our own expense here or should it be dwarfed by the lack of progress in the attacking third? Because the latter was really, truly the mandate for this team. I think there's something to be said for the impressive job, especially when you look at, Missing Walker Zimmerman as frequently as Nashville was. They obviously didn't have a guy coming into the year in Nick DePew that they were expecting to be a starter with Walker Zimmerman or, or at least platooning with Jack Mayer for that other center back spot. I think that 
because of those reasons, you saw Nashville make those decisions to be a little bit more conservative and, and protect their own goal more than going forward. If you have Walker Zimmerman in the lineup, I don't think your defense gets worse. That's certain. <laughs> but I do think that if you have Walker Zimmerman in, your, in the lineup, your attack gets better because he's going to be mm-hmm. able to produce some on, on um, set pieces. And that's something that Nashville didn't have to the degree that they have in past years as well. That's something to uh, maybe not, I, I don't think it excites, uh, you know, in the run of play, obviously, as, as fans as much as, as they would like. But I think people are happy when there are more goals. And if, if Walker had been in there more frequently, there would have been more goals. And I think that also possibly could have changed the way fans looked at the season. But again, without him, I think you can kind of scheme your way to to a, a stingier defense. It's harder to scheme your way to a more prolific attack without changing players. And I think Nashville, again, made those decisions um, for better or for worse. Nashville's 1.12 goals per match, the lowest among teams that finished in the top seven, again, in those traditional playoff positions. I I tweeted something, uh, I think, after the match that got a little bit taken out of context, which is the first time that's ever happened in the history of Twitter. (laughs) Uh, And I said, Nashville's a better team than their seventh place finish indicates. That points to disappointment in the regular season, but potential promise in the postseason. Some took that as a statement of optimism. I mean, there's there's an optimistic note at the end of it, but what I'm saying here is they underachieved, but all's mm-hmm. not lost yet. Yeah. Um, you know, I think a better team than their seventh place finish indicates to me is an indictment, not a statement of promise. But there is possibility that a team that that scores as little as they do, but allows as few goals. Of course, we've said it for years, right? This team is built for knockout play, and they finally started proving that in League's Cup. With that in mind, let's move into some playoff talk, and let's hear from Dan Lovitz talking about the matchup with Orlando. Looking back in our recent experience with them, it was a close game that was decided on um, you know, a few key moments, and that's the way the game goes. So nothing unusual in that regard, but certainly um, the stakes are heightened in postseason, so that's what we're looking forward to. As it pertains to the form that we are in going into this part of the season, I think we feel like we're in a good place. Certainly there are... Areas of the game, as always, that we're continuing to try to improve. Um, the obvious one is trying to put more goals in the back of the net uh, offensively. Uh, definitely button up some things defensively, but that's that's just our process. That's what we've been doing all year. Um, that's what we've been doing in a competition that was new to us in the League's Cup uh, that we were able to get some success from. But uh, like I said, the process remains the same. We're going to focus on what we can do to better ourselves moving into uh, first round of the playoffs. It's going to be very tight. Does that new format from the League's Cup, does that give the team a different approach in regards to the way you kind of go into the round of the playoffs? To be honest, I'm not sure. I don't think we've ever seen it before. So um, the league gets to make up their mind, and there's not really any say from any of us or anyone really other than themselves in wanting to make money on the format. So um, that's their prerogative, and so be it. It'll be interesting. We look at it as a challenge, even if we were hosting the first round for the two games. Um it's an interesting task to have to play a game three times over um, in a short period of time against the same opponent. That's not really something MLS has seen in the past. So um, it's a new challenge, something that we're looking forward to. Um, I think the dynamic stays relatively the same with trying to win every game, especially in the postseason. Um, you know, strategically, who knows how that actually plays out. I think we have to take it one game at a time, one half at a time. Um, and I know that's where our head's at. Dan, uh Pulling no punches, as he never really pulls punches, uh, and, and talking about the format a little bit, but also talking about this Orlando team. Let's tell you three things you may not know about the Lions, uh, and then Tim gets you to comment on, on each of these and kind of what that means for this matchup. Number one is they're on fire. They've lost just once in their last 12 matches. 
in that stretch, they've earned six more points than the second closest team. Who knew that was going to be Houston, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> Tim, why has Orlando been so good lately? Uh, some of it is is simply a matter of circumstance. Yes, they they beat Nashville in Geodis Park, but this is also a team that played New York City and lost. This is a team that drew Miami. This is a team that had a, a fairly easy run-in, but that doesn't take away the fact that they went and beat FC Cincinnati on the road. Yes, Cincinnati was kind of coasting by that point. So that's maybe a situation where you can say, okay, they took advantage of a team that didn't want it or something like that. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think there are there are caveats that you can look at with every team. I think the strength of schedule is part of it. And some of it is just Oscar Pereja is a really good coach and he knows, okay, now is the time that I you know turn those specific screws that I turn to motivate my guys. I think that's one of the top things that he is known for and, and really good at is, is pushing the right emotional buttons for his team and um feelings balled his way to, to uh you know that that uh incredible stretch run to the regular season. Yeah they had a historic season by their standards and it wasn't close. 63 points the best in club history by 12 points for a full season. Now you need to look at 2020 extrapolate to 34 games and they would have earned 60 or 61 at the pace they were on. So not like far and away the best but definitely the best, Tim. This is a club riding a historic high. What, what on a larger level has happened to help this Orlando club progress from and also ran for its first like five years? I mean, they were bad for the first several years. They kind of set the model for us saying it's tough to win as an expansion team for years and years and years, but they finally figured it out. How? Yeah, I think part of it is it's easy to be really bad in this league, but it's also easy to not be really bad in this league. And, and Orlando didn't kind of make that decision until maybe a little bit longer <laughs> than they should have. And then the other part of it is just what I've already said is, is Oscar Pereja's a really good coach. Um, I believe he's uh, may- maybe the second best coach in Rapids history. Um, I'm fairly certain he's one of the best coaches in FC Dallas history. And that's a club with a, a pretty uh, impressive history. So I-, I think you look at him and say, okay, maybe, maybe teams should go and, and find guys who not only know the league, but, but have gone outside the league and found success as well. Um, when uh, Orlando hired him, he had just done a, I, I think a, a couple year stint at Tijuana, and that's some something that um, testing yourself in Liga MX and coming back to Major League Soccer. I think if you've already had success in Major League Soccer, um, it says a lot about your likelihood of success when you have kind of expanded your horizons a little bit and learned mm-hmm. from a league as as we talked about over the course of League's Cup. Maybe not a ton more quality in Liga MX, but definitely a different style. And you need to be adaptive yeah. to kind of figure that out. And I think that helped Pereja become an even better coach than he was when he had good runs with the Rapids and with FC Dallas. Yeah, you pick up bits and pieces from another league and bring them back. And and you can also appeal to players who have been in that situation and, and recruit better. And that's the other thing I point to with Orlando is their recruiting. I, you know, I think in, in particular to drafting. I mean, look at uh, Daryl DK's the the tired example here, I guess. But but Duncan McGuire as well. Now, I mean, they're able to find extraordinarily extraordinary domestic talent through the super draft and through other sources, and bring those in and incorporate excellent players. And they have more money to spend. I mean, you you draft as well as they've drafted those players. If they're generation Adidas, don't count toward your books. And either way, are way cheaper than bringing in a a player with comparable production from a, a foreign league. And when you can do Hot that, Westfall. <laughs> what was that sorry hot west fall it's uh, happening hwf let's go baby <laughs> <laughs> the chills in the air and i'm heating up um finally a third third note here they're going to be tough to shut down in orlando they scored multiple goals in nine of their last 12 home matches but the real place that nashville supporters can be scared here and the reason why this may not be a great matchup uh despite the fact that we've said it might be the best of, of the matchups is that orlando's good on the road 
Um, they have the most road points in Major League Soccer. One of just two road teams to actually outscore their home opponents. Uh, and Tim, you look at what Nashville's done at home, just one home win in their last six. And that's been the question I think that's been asked again this year is why can't this team seal the deal at home? And those two factors may not combine for a lot of happiness uh, for Nashville here at Jonas Park. Yeah, well, I mean, the bright side is Nashville's going on the road twice if they, if they get to that point, right? So maybe they don't <laughs> right. need to worry about it. But yeah, I mean, it's it's not just that Orlando has been good on the road this year. It's it's that one of those wins and one of those recent wins came in Geodis Park. These are not guys who are going to show up and and be intimidated by the atmosphere that they find. Um, so it's something that Nashville is going to have to kind of adapt to. Um, at the beginning of last season, we... I don't want to say we we were critical of the atmosphere in Nashville, but we were realistic about what opposing opposing players were saying about it, and and that it wasn't a place that Nashville had really made its home yet. Over the course of the season and at the beginning of this season, that changed. Uh, it needs to go back to that. It, it can't be what it was for the beginning of the 2022 season. It needs to be more like the end of the 2022 season and the beginning of this season. If Nashville SC fans want to, you know, do their part to to kind of make it an intimidating atmosphere for Orlando City to play, um, this is not a club that is just going to be intimidated by the by virtue of the fact that they're walking into a 30,000 seat stadium that uh, very few people inside of want to see them win. And a reminder, this is best of three. It is not aggregate. It is just game by game. So it doesn't matter the amount of goals you you score on the road, concede at home, whatever. I think when you look at the fact that Orlando has been so efficient in the attack at home, I think you have to go in that expecting to score some goals, to, to have to score some goals and not just hang on tight for, for penalties. I, I think, you know, you need to expect Orlando is going to find its way past your back line and play a little more open. And then you come home and maybe that is where you play a cagier game and try to minimize chances. We'll see if Nashville can combine those two styles and work it um, a la 3-2 in 2020, Yonder Cadiz, the hero, uh, the much maligned Yonder Cadiz back on decision day of 2020. Tim, I want to... The unfairly maligned Yonder Cadiz. Somewhat unfairly. I will say somewhat unfairly. We don't have to relive that debate. No, Uh, (laughs) no, we're going to talk music instead for a second. I want you to name your favorite song of these four, putting you on the spot here. Baba O'Reilly by The Who. Semi-Charm Life by Third Eye Blind. Hit Me With Your Best Shot, Pat Benatar, or ABC, Jackson 5. So we got ABC, Hit Me With Your Best Shot, Semi-Charm Life, Baba O'Reilly. So really quick Baba O'Reilly aside it is the star of the funniest Pete Carroll tweet of all time when he when he just when he was the coach at USC he said uh Teenage Wasteland by the Who is actually called Baba O'Reilly who knew and that was just like thank you for tweeting that into the world Pete Carroll but uh since the Who have a lot of other songs and and maybe Third Eye Blind not so much I'll have to give Third Eye Blind the the Bay Area boys a little bit of love and and say semi-charmed life Okay. I'm so curious where we're going. You are going to be the best fit for the Capitol View in Mulrose location. This is uh, their Instagram two days ago. They posted a a, a playlist. Is it each of our locations is something unique to offer, especially when it comes down to the music? And uh, they named a song for each location. So Capitol View. BMIN. Best and most important neighborhood. I'm looking right now. Thanks for the, thanks for explaining that. (laughs) I put you on the spot and you weren't ready. I love it. It is. It is. (laughs) Not for the first time, not for the last time today. Um, hit me with your best shot. So, okay. which which makes sense. If you come at the king of locations, you best not miss, <laughs> right? So, um, ML Rose, by the way, uh, you know, is is the theme of Nashville's goal scorers this year. The who? Who's going to score? <laughs> uh, Bob O'Reilly's going to score. Uh, 
just having fun with locations. MLROs, the point being they have four locations. They're each a little bit different, but have the same common thread, which is excellent service, great product. Uh, so again, MLROs, Capital View, Sylvan Park, and Mount Juliet. You can't go wrong, uh, except that now Semi-Charm Life is in my head, and that's not great. So thanks for that. You you want something else to talk about for this Semi-Charm podcast? To get me podcast. through this. Yes. yes, to get me through this. <laughs> Actually, I've taught our son that, because he'll always say, I want something else when he's at the dinner table, and I'll always sing that. <laughs> so he sings Third Eye Blind when he wants to get me blueberries. through this. And now yep, I promise people I'll never sing. I can't do it. You just, hey, you got guitars yeah. behind you, man. Pick them up. Let's go. Key of C. <laughs> All right. Moving on to much more pleasant things, which is, oh, he's got, he's getting the guitar. <laughs> if you insist. Let's go. It's not picking up in your mic, buddy. I'm sure it sounds great. Uh, but it's not picking up good. in your mic. Well, we'll, uh, we, we'll do a bonus episode where Tim sings at some point. <laughs> he was playing the guitar for those who don't are not watching on YouTube because we don't put these on YouTube. Um, thank you for the effort. Let's get on to your mailbag questions now. And there are a lot of really good ones here. Nashville SC stats. Were our expectations too high in the preseason? MLS writers predicted we'd finish eighth. We came in seventh. Maybe we were wrong to set our expectations high in the preseason, Tim. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, did the MLS writers know that Walker Zimmerman would miss get 10 games or that Randall Leal would miss 13 or that Anibal Godoy would miss six in addition to the international time that he missed? I, probably not. Did they know that CJ Sapong would go so cold that Nashville unloaded him in the first transfer window? I could actually say specifically that they did not predict that because they predicted the opposite for Sapong because he's known for having a double-digit goal season every other year. And uh, Nashville SC fans will remember that he did not do so in 2022. So they're saying that he would this year. I mean, I, it's just the random vagaries of chance. Nashville had heaps of bad luck. Uh, despite that, they were still equally close on points. There were six points back of fourth place, and they're six points ahead of eighth place. So, you know, it's a situation where, yes, it looks like because seven is close to eight, that, that, that they were basically in eighth place, but it was, they were pretty far away from those two spots that were the play-in games. So, um you look also at a mid-season cup run that prevented a banged up team from not getting as much rest as you'd hope. I, I'm pretty certain that the Raiders didn't project that either. So in a league with extreme parity, it's going to happen. It doesn't make it like, okay. It doesn't make it fun that it happened. Um, sometimes you're the fly and sometimes you're the swatter. They were the swatter for the first half of the year and during leagues cup and fly for the second half. So they basically looked like two different teams. And I don't know if you want to say, okay, because the, the second half team was bad, then that's what, ends up being correct in the table or if you yeah. average them and that is basically what happens when you look at the final table i just think it's you know in a league as tightly contested as this one is there's a situation where sometimes it's just not going to look as good as as maybe you feel like you should have looked well i want to remind people that i don't think expectations were very high in the preseason hopes might have been high i think you and i our expectations were probably a fourth or fifth place fifth place team i think that that reasonably assesses what we thought Remember, we had a lot of folks who said no striker coming in. We're going to have to rely midseason on that again. Too much reliance on Hani Mukhtar. You know, are Schaffelberg and Pico going to be enough to kickstart the attack? A lot of questions that this team actually answered pretty resoundingly. Hey, we got this in the first half of the year that maybe that's when people's expectations were raised. And then they fell again. I think the team finished about where most folks, if you're really being honest with yourself back in February or March, thought this team might finish. We thought it'd be a little higher than this. It probably should have been higher than this. I, I would just argue about this idea that universal expectations were really all that high to begin with. And apologies, Nashville SC stats. I don't know what you predicted. Maybe your 
expectations were more in line with ours and therefore, okay, fine. Um, I don't think expectations were very high. <laughs> I think they Nashville probably finished about where those expectations sat, which is a, a playoff also ran that has a chance maybe to make something happen in the postseason. I think that was the fear almost, not the expectation. Yeah. Or, or, it, or the fear and the expectation. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it all comes down to how, how, you know, one game here, one game there, one goal here, one goal there can really kind of change the outcomes of, of what your season looks like. And the, the line between fourth and, and seventh isn't big. And the line between seventh and eighth isn't big. It's all, it's, it, I, I hate like cold take type uh, accounts because it's so yeah. unfair to ask people to predict things. And then if they're right or wrong, you kind of, you know, roast them. But it is a situation where I don't I don't think Nashville looks like an eighth place team as much as they look like a, you know, fourth place team. I think it's basically all the, <laughs> all the same from a Nashville perspective. Yeah. Yeah. We can draw two two fine lines, certainly among, you know, a, a position finish uh, when the quality doesn't always reflect where a team actually sits. Uh, Aaron Farquhar and uh, Tunji with similar questions or statements. Aaron, what positions do we need to upgrade our depth to in order to improve the squad for next season? And Tunji, not a question, a full-on statement, all caps, rebuild the midfield in the offseason. I don't disagree. I think, you know, I would have liked to have seen a better transitional period in this aging midfield. Uh, Sean Davis mm-hmm. was intended to be that and then yeah. just didn't get turned to once the, the diamond shape you know, transpired because he just wasn't always the best fit in that. I think he's a guy who plays, still plays 34 games for a lot of MLS teams out there if he's healthy uh, the full season. But I think it is time to rebuild the midfield around a guy like Davis and and look at two levels of that rebuild. I think number one is who are your cornerstones that you can get that can be your next Dax and Anibal, trusted veterans who can be steely in midfield to compliment Sean. And you got to go U22 here. Again, not as an answer, but as a speculative question, you know, who can we compliment with at a number six at a number eight, who we're not relying on to be a cornerstone, but who, if they hit, if our scouting tells us what we think could be a real, real value add here in the next couple of years. Yeah. I think the position is not a mystery to anybody. It's midfield. But what I think Nashville needs is more attacking punch in the midfield. I've been a big Alex Wheel defender. I know a lot of listeners don't really care for his game, but I've defended him a lot. I also think it's time that Nashville upgrades such that he's more of a depth player than a guy who's getting, you know, the vast majority of his healthy minutes. I think there's no denying what he can provide defensively and even in transition in the attack, but he's limited in the attacking third and that limits what Nashville can do in the attacking third. He's capable of occasional greatness. So I, we still have that lefty banger in, in, in our minds and a, and a little golden aura around it, but it's too mistake prone. I think the, the attempt to draw the penalty that we saw against Red Bulls is kind of indicative of that. He also has a bit of a reputation for diving and he's not going to get as many calls as you might hope. So um, I think a winger who can play inside in a pinch or, or maybe as a wing back basically the same things that Moyle does could help this team out. Probably a younger guy, probably a more attacking. Um, I don't want to say talented, but a, a more attacking oriented skill set sort of guy. Like you mentioned, uh, that probably comes from a U22 initiative spot. Um, Nashville does not have the full complement of U22 initiative spots because all three of their DPs are outside of the TAM threshold and older than 20 three, I think is the cutoff for those three guys. Um, that would be Dax Walker or Hani Walker and Surridge. And then uh, I, I kind of scooped myself there because I was trying to read and talk <laughs> extemporaneously at the same time. But you need 
a either a, a fountain of youth or you need a guy who can replicate what Dax does, but who is not, um, you know, 35 or 36 years old. I understand why NSE traded Jan Gregush, um, but a, a guy like Jan Gregush on a cheap salary that he was on is the sort of guy they need. Obviously, they got way more assets in return when they traded him back to, to Minnesota, but it is a situation where the skill set that he brought is something that I think Nashville could have grown into. And it's unfortunate that they, they, you know, didn't stick with it or for whatever reasons they made the decision that they did to hoard assets and keep them in a, a Scrooge McDuck style Tam vault or something. But um, yeah, that sort of player who is a holding midfielder, but has a little bit more to provide in the attack is, is I think something that could really take this team to another level. A Scrooge McDuck approach results in quacks in your defense. <laughs> now i haven't done the most embarrassing thing on this episode please play the guitar again please pick up the instrument again <laughs> play me off <laughs> john mueller does making the league's cup final and backing into the playoffs make the season a success quote-unquote in the eyes of the club regardless of what happens in the playoffs if yes is that not troubling for y'all because it is for me uh first of all this is not an attack on john it is an attack on the concept of backing into the playoffs. John knows he's the homie. This is completely a, a semi-related Tim rant, but there's no such thing as, as backing into playoffs. If First of all, if you made the playoffs with like four regular season games left. But second of all, any league where everyone plays the same number of games, you can't really back in because you know what the, what the, what the threshold is, unless there's like some sort of tiebreaker that you happen to luck your way into on decision day. There really is no such thing as backing in. I understand the point that John is making though, that Nashville didn't, uh, kind of continue achieving what they were expecting to achieve as they approach the end of the season. And um, I don't think the club sees the season as a success if they don't win a playoff series. Honestly, anything short of a home playoff game is not success in the regular season. Um, I think Mike Jacobs would tell you our goal is to make the playoffs and see what happens from there. I think he's very realistic that that is not what the regular season goal actually is. The regular season goal is to set yourself up to find success in the playoffs. And that includes a home playoff match or in this odd year of a playoff format, a hosting a series for for playoffs. The League's Cup run was great. Uh, it didn't end with the trophy. And so that doesn't trump. Trump, uh, a lack of of expected success in the regular season. No. You and I have railed on about how success can't be considered a, a strict binary, and we don't need to get into it again. People can go back and listen a couple episodes ago, but I think anything short of a trophy is in the strictest sense not a success, but that doesn't mean it's a failure either, or, or basically everybody fails every year. <laughs> There's only one team that wins MLS Cup. There's only one team that wins the Porter Shield. There's only one team that wins US Open Cup. This year, also Leagues Cup comes into play. That's four potential trophies. Everybody else failed. I don't think that's really the case. The reality is the season is disappointing without a series win against yeah. Orlando and the club. I think um, they might not want to admit it, but I think they would. And I think the general anxiety John's going with here is, is the club going to view maybe a, a nice playoff run then as we don't have to act. We don't have to change anything. We're good enough. And I don't think that's going to happen. I think the lessons about this team have been learned by the front office, regardless of what happens in the next three to eight seven, whatever matches, I think they know they have to be better regardless of what playoff run happens. So I don't think we're going to see a case where Nashville goes deep in the playoffs and says, you know what? We're good. We got the team we need. I think change is coming no matter what happens in the postseason. And so I think if you're anxious about that, I don't think this club will rest on any kind of laurels. Not that there are a lot of laurels to rest on right now. Jay Oz, would Gary ever think about moving Hani to the top of the diamond with Fafa, Chaff, and Sam up top? At this point, got to try something different. Yeah, I 
I went back and looked um, because I felt like that was most of what they did with the diamond. Um, I went back and looked. Transfer market is not uh, an unimpeachable source, but it is it is good enough. <laughs> Nashville, according to the transfer market, again had 15 matches where they came out with a, a 4-4-2 diamond. Um, in three of them, Hani was not in the starting lineup. He was unavailable for one and came off of the bench for two of them. And in nine of them, he was the 10 with either Fafa or Schaffelberg in the starting lineup with a striker, whether that was Surge in the last few games or Bunbury before that. So it feels like that was like the main thing that they did with the diamond. I think as we talked about in terms of how they set themselves up for the season, I think that was the purpose of going to the diamond was to get Hani behind two attacking players, one, you know, traditional striker and one pure speed guy. So I, I, yes, they will do that. I, I wouldn't consider it a changeup. I am interested to see if they would go to something that is a bit more traditional of what we've seen from Nashville in the past. And they kind of did this a little bit in the final few games of the year. And let's go back to just kind of a bog standard four two three one with Godoy and and McCarty or Godoy and uh, Anunga, Godoy and Davis, or you know put McCarty in for Godoy and any of those other than the one where you would require two Dax McCartys, um, Dax's McCarty, excuse me. And then put put Hani still at the number 10 and um, just put Surge up top by himself and have true wingers uh, to provide a little bit of width and attack. Then you don't require Lovitz and, and more to be high and wide as much as you have been requiring them to in the diamond. And that might give you a little bit more opportunity to fly forward. And, and yes, maybe give up a few more chances coming the other way. But it's called play, baby. You got you to gotta score goals to, to win games here. Michael Cass, why are none of the first round playoff games in this series on weekends until the if necessary game three? And why is the series being spread over two full weeks? I mean, it's, it's I have three answers, I think, right? NFL, CFB, MLB, right? They know they're not going to be the number one TV focus, right? If, if if they're not the only game going. Yeah, I mean, it's to me, it's certainly to make more money. Um, a lot of these other series, it's just Nashville and Orlando are the ones that kind of get bitten a little bit um philly and new england play on saturday lafc and vancouver play on saturday those are four and seven p.m games so they're not you know they're right in the heart of college football on sunday you've got a five seven and nine so i guess the 9 p.m game might extend uh past or or towards the end of the nfl match nfl match nfl game (laughs) um I, i i i don't think it's to avoid competition i think it's because they looked at uh the schedule and said probably Nashville and Orlando is the one that is not going to, it's going to be the least likely to beat out, uh, you know, it's a, a Sunday of, of NFL football, mm-hmm. a Saturday of college football. Mm-hmm. I guess technically that puts you in a situation where you have to compete with Monday night football. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 there are just some teams that aren't going to have good days of the week, unfortunately. And it's, it's Nashville's turn. And, uh, in a season that we have talked about throughout this episode being kind of riddled with bad luck, I would say that's <laughs> some of the worst luck so far. Yeah. Justin Belisle, did we play too many matches this year? In y'all's opinion, what would the optimum number of matches a year be, or should it be a roster expansion instead? I don't mind the idea of a roster expansion. I don't think that's coming um, necessarily. I, I think 34 is fine for a number of matches, but I think you have to start being mindful of the load when you're playing Lee's Cup the way you are uh, when you've got, you know, random other competitions. I think U.S. Open Cup is probably ultimately mm-hmm. the thing that suffers in the long run because it's yeah. not as marquee and MLS doesn't have, you know, television rights to that. Uh, it's it's not ideal, especially for a good number of the best players in this league who are also playing internationally and that 
cadence has picked up as well. And you're coming off a world cup year. So uh, too many matches. Yes, Tim, I don't know that I have a great fix for it other than to eliminate or reduce a couple tournaments that I really like, which are leaks cup and us open cup. What you got? Yeah. I mean, I'm right there with both of you. Yes. There were too many games this year. Um, some of that is luck. Uh, in, in this case, good luck also means bad luck because <laughs> on-field success means that you play more games and there's more strain. Mm-hmm. Uh, you look at the international pers- uh, appearances for guys like Walker Zimmerman, Anibal Godoy, Fafa Pico, who uh, filed his one-time switch to Haiti and had played a lot for Haiti this year. Randall Leal, even when he was coming off injury, played a bit for Costa Rica this summer. That's That's tough when you have a league's cup run that, that lasts seven games when you have us open cup that um, unfortunately didn't last as long as Nashville fans would have liked. But again, that ended up reducing the strain on these guys. Some of it is also bad decisions by Nashville to not give more time to squad players or MLS next pro call-ups in matches outside of leagues, uh, outside of league play where you can use those guys. The roster rules allow you to do it as long as it's not a league match. So that kind of takes me into the second part of Justin's question. Should there be a roster expansion? Um, I don't think the rosters need to expand just because Nashville didn't take advantage of the ways that they didn't have to use their their senior roster. Uh, they didn't maximize the size of their roster already. So so why should the roster size itself have to expand? One thing that I think could make sense, and, and this is not going to be a Tim changes the roster rules episode because uh, we're we're already through one Zoom recording. We don't have six more hours of Zoom recording. Tim Winter, <laughs> we're talking yeah. hot Tim Winter there. Yeah. But um, I. Players outside of the senior roster, that's your top 20, essentially top 20 most highly compensated guys. There are some exceptions, uh, guys who are on Generation Adidas contracts don't count against the roster budget no matter how much they make. Um, There are guys who you can buy down to be off of the senior budget by using general allocation money, things like that. But basically, it's your top 20 guys in salary. I think guys outside of that uh, senior roster should be interchangeable with your guys on MLS Next Pro rosters with no limits. You should be able to swap them out week of um there are certainly downsides to that and you know they'd have to be thought through but as it stands guys on mls next pro contracts or on a season-long loan to mls next pro can only get limited games and in the league that's only due to hardship it's only four day contracts i believe and you can do it uh, which means one game and you can only do it four separate times for per guy over the course of the season so i think maybe loosening up some of the can you balance between the senior team and the reserve team would be good. And and you say you can't send any of these top 20 guys on your team down unless it's for a rehab stint. Like we saw Randall Leal play a couple games with Huntsville city this year. But other than that, I think um, it gives you a little bit more flexibility and it gives teams the chance to probably invest more in those top 20 too, because the next 10 guys that count against your senior roster um, can be a little bit more fluid in terms of of what you are providing to them salary wise and what you are providing to them in terms of games they can get more games that way too by mm-hmm. being loaned down a little bit more regularly to reserve teams uh, what a great way to solve a couple of headaches at once there and I, I i do think and hope the league will continue to evaluate how it's using mls next pro to benefit its clubs it's only two years in and one year in obviously for nashville and some other clubs so um, hopefully we can continue to learn. The league can continue to learn from from some of the the challenges that it's faced. Uh, speaking of young guys, Andrew and KC, who are some Huntsville guys we should be on the lookout for? We've not done a full Huntsville recap. Maybe more to come on that. But Tim, any high level comments you want to make there? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to get too into it because I think you raise a good point there. We should probably talk extensively about them at some point soon here. Um, hopefully the off season is a little uh, little ways off, knock on wood. But uh, when that time comes, maybe we'll talk a little bit more about Huntsville. But the one who's already signed to a senior contract, Adem Sipic, he's going to be the main one. And I think when you look at the way Nashville's roster right now is constructed, 
he could he could be a guy that actually contributes next year. Nashville can use more striker help. He is not unseating Sam Surridge anytime soon. He's not going to unseat a $3 million striker that, that Nashville went out and acquired from a from a Premier League, uh, a recent Premier League stint. But it can be as simple as, as beating out Ethan Zubak for the number three striker minutes. If you look at how frequently he played, it wasn't as much as he might have liked. I think if you have a player that you have uh, some some sunk costs and developmental costs, and you have a future for this guy who's, I believe, currently still 17 years old, um, you know, you, you have a guy that you can develop and, and give him more minutes. There might be more of an incentive to give your number three striker minutes than than when your number three striker is Ethan Zubak. And I think you look at Sam Surridge, you look at Teal Bunbury, and then you say, okay, let's get this guy some minutes, and and maybe he can outperform. Teal Bunbury, as Teal Bunbury gets up there in years, uh, as we always say with Dax, he's younger than us, so we can make fun of him for being old. <laughs> so I, I do think he's the main one to watch. But some of these other guys that that played significantly for Huntsville are guys who are going to be, you know, career second division type of players. But some of them are guys that are that are first or second year out of college, and and Nashville is going to kind of really evaluate where they fit into those, you know, spots twenty one through thirty on the roster. Yeah, you know, when when a couple of Arsenal Academy players score a goal in Premier League play, you call it a hail end goal. We're gonna have a Curry Ingram goal one day. A couple of former Academy guys that'd be great. I know they're not really at Curry anymore, or so at least the Academy is right. The Academy is yeah. Go to the training says yeah. Curry Ingram goal. There you go. Uh, two last questions here, and then a, a brief playoff look. And, and these are both really good ones, I think. Uh, from two two friends of the show, two personal friends, uh, Will Reiner. It's the second year where NSC has faded in the back half of the season. Is the manager doing something wrong? Or is he managing the heck out of a limited squad, but facing the inevitable depth issues and regression to the mean that mid-tier spending squads will face? I thought it'd be fun to do a little statistical look and don't know that I learned a lot from it, but in the back (laughs) half of the season, the final 17 matches this year, Nashville earned just 17 of its 49 total points. So this year, very clear delineation between what it did in the first 17 matches, 32 freaking points, and what it did in the final 17, one point per match. Uh, the last two years before that, full seasons here, um, pretty close to half the points, 24 of 50 in 2022, 26 of 54 a couple of years ago. So technically speaking, in a full season, Nashville's always finished slower than it started, but really it was pretty much equal for all intents and purposes uh, the past two years. This year, not at all. Um, you can point very quickly, very easily to League's Cup. I think into the physical fatigue, but also maybe even a little bit of deflation in the wake of not winning that trophy. Thanks to Messi. Um, beyond that, Tim, is this a tactical thing? Is this something Gary Smith is not managing well, or is it just kind of the way things go when a team gets tired? Yeah. I mean, it's sort of bad luck. Maybe there's a little bit of not managing things. Well, we just talked about how Nashville didn't adequately use it's it's off budget roster during some of those other competitions. And that meant getting worn down over the summer. NSC played seven Leagues Cup games and only two MLS teams played that many. Miami, who obviously you just mentioned beat Nashville in the final and Philly, who won the third place match in their final stretch runs. Everything after Leagues Cup ended, Philly finished three, two and six. So three wins and six draws. Nashville, two wins and and five uh, draws, three losses. Uh, Miami, four, four and four, despite signing literally the best player ever. Um, yes, they were terrible before they signed literally the best player ever before four and four in major league soccer play. And, uh, is, is probably not what they were expecting when they spent what they did. So I think that it kind of demonstrates that the, the, uh, fatigue that sets in even a really good team in Philly was not awesome after their league's cup run. So, um, when you, then I think the final factor to look at is for Nashville, you have a team 
hoping that a big striker signing would be an immediate impact maker. And Sam Surridge, quite frankly, took a minute to be ready for that role in Major League Soccer play. Yes, he had a couple big goals in League's Cup, but if a guy comes in, uh, you know, a, a few weeks before League's Cup starts, uh, I believe the, the transfer window opened August 30, or uh, excuse me, uh, June 30th. Um, he could have come in a couple games before League's Cup started and, and maybe gotten his feet wet. It might have been a different story for those final 10 games of the year. It didn't happen that way. I think that's one thing when people uh, criticize Nashville's transfer strategy. I think it's one thing that they should really look at, making sure they have their um, you know, T's crossed, I's dotted before the transfer window opens. They've missed you know three or four games from guys in the past. Obviously, when John Ducatis came in, it was a different story because of the quarantine regulations back then and stuff. But Surge came in maybe a few games later than Nashville could have gotten him in. And if that doesn't happen, maybe they get a little bit more out of him in this stretch run. And the, that, you know, that two, three and five record to close the season looks a little different. That's a good point. And at the time there was impatience and we said, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Yeah. It's coming. But that's now we can point. be hypocrites and complain that they didn't do it. Right. <laughs> I mean, some of the impatience could have been justified, uh, of course, based on on the hindsight that we have now. And yeah, I mean, this is a team that never really found a way to, uh, you know, efficiently, effectively feed Hani Mukhtar or give him freedom to operate consistently, especially in the last half of the year. They're plotting in the final third as a result, as teams sat back and learned this is the Nashville way and this is how you beat it is by letting Nashville have a little more of the ball. And then when Nashville found frustration, they lost some composure in key moments. More on that answer when I give you my Nashville manifest. So at the end of the next uh, the next question, and this one from Steve Cavendish, uh, a, a great friend of the show. Check out the Nashville banner, NashvilleBanner.com. Great independent news source here in Nashville uh, and Lamestream Sports, of course, in the 440 Sports Network. Steve says, now that we have an official sample size, one full season, what are the things we definitively know, Tim, heading into the playoffs? Well, all sample sizes can be official. It's just a matter of how robust. Oh, they are. come on. Let's accept. No, Let's accept that yeah. 34 games is a sufficient sample size to say something. What is that something? Yeah. I'm um, just giving Steve a hard time as we I so know. often do, but we know Nashville can outperform regular season expectations in knockout play. Yes. We learned that not in league play, but um, they were kind of met in the league's cup group. They, they drew Cincy in America thereafter. Uh, those are teams with much higher expectations for that competition. Then they blasted Minnesota, handled Monterey, and probably should have beaten Miami in the final. We don't know that they will do that again, but we know that they have the capability of outperforming regular season. And in this case, uh, in League's Cup, regular season was a two-match <laughs> group stage. So so not exactly the most robust sample size, but nonetheless. Um, and then in the abstract slash longer term, I think you could say after 34 games plus uh, U.S. Open Cup and League's Cup, we know that time to turn over the roster a little bit is approaching. Um, that obviously does not apply to this postseason, but Nashville has kept it fairly consistent in terms of who is in the core with some important pieces turning over. They added CJ Sapong, Teal Bunbury, Fafa Pico in successive off seasons. And then they've relied on in-season moves to find the final product. Obviously, Sam Surridge being the big one here, but look at Jacob Schaffelberg um, as recently as last year was a huge move that I don't think a ton of people thought was huge, but it worked out perfectly for Nashville at the time. But the core isn't getting any younger. Anibal Godoy, over 30. Dax McCarty, over 30. Teal Bunbury himself, over 30. Some of these guys are are not necessarily in the twilights of their career, but they can see it. It's, it's not in the not-so-distant future, and Nashville needs to know that they have a succession plan in place. It doesn't have to be this offseason necessarily, but sooner or later, there's going to have to be either a wholesale replacement of the core, which I don't think is going to happen, or a piece-by-piece piece turning over of that core as the, the seasons progress. And I think this offseason is going to be an important one to evaluate if it's time to say, okay, 
you know, we added Sean Davis last offseason. That that was supposed to be a core turning over piece. And I think it was when you look at how much Sean played this year, how, how much he's played for Nashville SC as a whole. But that's just one piece of the core mm-hmm. that's turned over. I think you could, I guess, potentially look at Surge and say that's one piece of the core turning over. So maybe that is already in progress, but it is something that's going to have to happen um, sooner or later. This club, four years in, has has relied on Walker Zimmerman, has relied on Dax McCarty. Those are guys that are rocks for this team, but you need new rocks too. You need guys who can come in and, and kind of be new lifeblood over the course of the franchise. And that's something that for such a young club has not had to happen yet, but it will have to happen sooner or later. I'm going to take two stats that I can trust after 34 games and then um, convert them into uh, some analysis based also on, on the eye test. Number one, we know after 34 games, the Nashville is mediocre at creating chances. 41.8 expected goals this year. That's 10 worse than they did last year in 34 games. That is uh, actually, yeah, 10 worse. And then 10 worse as well, maybe nine, nine and a half worse than in 2021. This is a team, even by its own standards, that is not a great chance creating team based on that XG stat. However, Nashville's elite defensively. Uh, their expected goals against of 36 this year, the best in a 34 game season by a lot, by eight goals from a really good defensive team last year and by a couple from 2021. So I take those two numbers and I give you my Nashville manifesto. Uh, what do we know about this team? What is this team? What was this team in 2023? Nashville's a low chance frequency team for themselves and for their opponents. Tim, you ruined my manifesto earlier by saying that like five minutes into the show. <laughs> uh, but when you are a low chance frequency team, you increase the potential for randomness and Nashville's tip the scales against itself when it composes itself poorly, when mm-hmm. the coin flips against it, you know, when, when things haven't gone their way, when they've gotten behind the eight ball, they've gotten desperate and, and not as calculated in the attack. Um, they've earned late red cards and and some penalties and late moments. They've, they've not come through and composed themselves as well as you'd expect. So I think that's the two flaws of this team. Number one, low chance frequency, which is a good thing and a bad thing. Good for your defense, bad for your attack. But when things are random, they've not put their thumbs on those scales and tilted them back their direction. And that could be their fatal flaw. But again, it's also the reason why you can't write this team out. You can't write this team off in the playoffs. Yeah. Oh, you know, what you're saying there is that essentially they're increasing the variance and that can work for you if you're an underdog. And Mm -hmm. I think four years into this franchise, people want to see Nashville kind of no longer have to play like they're an underdog. And if you increase the variance as a favorite, you are giving the underdog a chance to come and bite you. And um, I think, you know, whether it's randomness, whether it's, it's just simple bad luck that happened more this year than it has in the past as well. Yeah. That's that's totally fair. Uh, all right, going outside in. Thanks for all your great questions, by the way. Three playoff superlatives. We're going to bring you uh, our most interesting series to watch, the biggest blowout that we expect, and the series most likely to erupt into chaos. And we'll start with uh, the most interesting series. Tim, I like Atlanta-Columbus on this one. I think that the star power is there. When you have Cucho on one side, you have Tago Almada on the other, who, by the way, got a red card in the last game. So I guess he has to sit that first playoff match. That's a bummer. Uh, Julian Gressel, of course, for Columbus, a great acquisition and former Atlanta player, like three stops to go now somehow. Uh, I think <laughs> this has the style, the star power, and um, you talk about the variants. I think there are a lot of different ways this series could go, and I'm really intrigued to see how it goes. I think we could see a lot of goals. Atlanta's defense is not great. Their attack has made up for it just enough this year, and Columbus is a team that I'd put as a dark horse to win MLS Cup based on the talent they have. 
yeah, I would I would have picked that game or that series, but for the fact that you did, so so I will have to uh, go out, out and uh, pick a different one. I really like uh, the Seattle matchup. I think when you look yeah. at a Seattle team that often felt like they were underachieving over the course of the season, um, you say, okay, they're the number two seed, but you look at FC Dallas and they're the number seven seed, and they feel like they're probably better I, like i don't know if that's a universal <laughs> feeling it's kind no, of no you're thought. not wrong you're not wrong yeah, it's kind of a weird thought to say that the two seed almost feels like an underdog to the seven seed and it may not ultimately prove to be true but certainly that that little factor uh, makes it a much more intriguing match than your typical two seven yeah well i mean seattle is similar to nashville in a lot of ways i mean they've only scored three more goals than nashville this year which is not what you expect to see from seattle so again a high variance team uh there as well because they've had an elite defense as well very similar statistically to the boys in gold all right biggest blowout what do you think is, is a lopsided series here yeah i'm i it would be unfair to do the the ones versus eight i didn't do that either. i think yeah I, I think either i think either uh red bulls or um or charlotte is going to just absolutely get destroyed by cincinnati i think um kansas city and or uh san jose i actually like san jose more than i like kansas city i was surprised to see that they finished ninth and kansas city finished eighth but <laughs> they might they might holding a little candle up against St. Louis because uh, our, I think our opinions about St. Louis are, are not long great. established. They're not here, great guys. In terms of what could be evenly matched uh series, I actually think Houston is, is going to take care of real salt Lake. I think when you look at how well um, Hector Herrera has played this year, it is not always obviously led to the, the top results, but there was a while where Houston was number two or number three in, in the West pretty consistently. I Maybe it's unfair to Real Salt Lake, but they never feel like they're a super good team, even though they finished fifth in the West. And I just see, um, perhaps inaccurately so, I, I just see Houston making relatively easy work. Turn about is fair play because that was the one that I had, uh, had chosen. <laughs> so I'll go, I'll go Philly, New England, and you wouldn't normally expect a four or five to be a big blowout. In fact, New England just beat Philly on decision day for what that's worth. But I still think, you know, a rudderless New England team that is without their manager could easily fold, especially if they get down early. Philly, for all their warts, that is, you know, haven't won the big one, quote unquote, in in league play. They know what's up in the playoffs. They don't typically lose in the first round, as Nashville learned the hard way when they got beat in the second round a couple years ago by them. I, I could see that one either being pretty close because both teams have some quality or being pretty ugly and in a, a list of games that I think will be pretty tight uh, elsewhere. I could see that one being a, a five, one aggregate type of, of situation uh, most likely to erupt into chaos. The, the favorite one, where will chaos happen? Well, chaos follows Oscar Pereja. I'm just, saying. <laughs> and I mean, Gary Smith didn't say that post game after Nashville lost to Orlando, but he did say, you know, he didn't love the way that they manage the game and that they take their cues from their manager. Uh, so there's, I think you take that little bit and you can say, maybe these teams don't love each other so much. Orlando can be pretty fiery. It's the way they play. That's, that's why they thrive sometimes, but it's a double-edged sword. I think Nashville and Orlando could devolve into some uh, disciplinary chaos here. I mean, mm-hmm. Nashville's not exactly been the most composed team in its history. Uh, but also maybe some some MLS after dark style theatrics. So I, I think look no further than right here at Jonas Park in game two for some wild stuff happening. I actually think in terms of on field chaos, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna look for red cards and all that. But I think on field chaos. I think if the Quakes do get past SKC, as I just said, I think they will. I think they have a real chance to to put some fear in St. Louis, and I think St. Louis City also plays a style of game that is conducive to chaos. 
Um, they're similar to, to Red Bulls in terms of style of play. They did invent the press this year, if, if anybody forgot <laughs> that. Um, so it is a situation where that that is a, a high variance uh, tactic for, for the opposite reason, essentially, that Nashville's games are high variance because anything can happen on any given play. Nashville kind of decreases the number of reps so any results can happen in any given match. And that's something that... Um, you know, I, I think a team with the the weapons, but the flawed weapons that San Jose has for two games, they can come out and play awesome ball and, and potentially get a, an upset victory. Yeah, I, I I could see it. I could totally see that happening, uh, especially with what we've said about St. Louis this year. Uh, what a show. This is fun. This is a long show and, and we're in playoff form here, Tim, I think. And maybe Nashville will actually be on, in playoff form and um, and not the form they've been in lately. Uh, that, that would be nice for a lot of fans, I think. If you like the show, guys, uh, hop on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Give us a rating. Scroll down on the bottom. Leave us a review as well. Uh, some of you have done that here lately, and we certainly appreciate it. Uh, Tim, what else do you have for the good people in this marathon episode before we hop out? Not a lot. Just uh, hopefully we're like Wes teased earlier. We are hoping to have a little bit more of Orlando preview content. Um, so look forward to that. But uh, everybody just enjoy the so- soccer. There's not a whole lot left happening. So uh, let's let's make sure that this final uh, run of the MLS season, the, the MLS postseason, as you as you would consider it, I guess, uh, everybody enjoys it as much as possible. Cannot wait for it. We'll be here for the ride. Thanks to ML Rose for amazing burgers, for the dog yoga, for the playlists. That's a sentence. Uh, thanks to Tim for the music, but also Moon Taxi, uh, more importantly. Thanks to oh, Arsenal for almost scoring a goal as we speak. Uh, that was going to work out really well with the cadence of my talking there, and then it got saved. Uh, rate, review, subscribe, tell a friend, give us a follow, listen to all the shows on the 440 Sports Network, and we can't wait to talk to you very soon.